Well, our message this morning will be from Matthew's Gospel. We'll be continuing our study in Matthew's Gospel. But the passage is appropriate for Easter morning. We're not quite to the Passion Week in Matthew's Gospel. We're only halfway there. But, but just like last year, uh, we get to hear again about the treasure that Christ is. So we will be in Matthew chapter 13 this morning. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 44, and we'll go to verse 50. And I'll advance the slides as we move on. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray as we begin our time together. Lord, I pray as, as we look to your word, that you would speak. That even though we are apart from one another, and this is not the way that you have designed this means of grace to go forward, it is the way that you have ordained that it go forward these, this month. Lord, we miss being with one another. We miss hearing your word together. But we know that you speak through your word. We ask that you'd speak this morning. Show us, Lord, the treasure that Christ truly is. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, God's people are given this command. And you might remember it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. That is to say, all of your thoughts, all of your desires and emotions, every part of your being should love God. That's what we're created for. But... But here, here's something that, that I think we all understand. An ought or, or a should doesn't necessarily make it so. I, I ought to exercise more. That doesn't mean I will. I ought to eat healthier. That doesn't mean I will. I ought to be more of an encouragement to others. I ought to be less critical. I ought to be less lazy. Just because someone says you ought to do something, even God... <laughs> doesn't mean we'll do it. The thing about humans, the thing about who we are, if there's something we don't find worthwhile, we won't do it. There's two factors that we typically incorporate into the calculation of whether we'll do something or not. The one is we ask that question, well, how much is this worth? And I don't necessarily mean how much money is it worth, but, but can, does, it, does it have value? Can I gain 
social capital from it? Can, can I gain time from this investment? Can it, can it gain security for me? What is it worth? And the second calculation that we, that we internally make, that maybe without even thinking about it, is, is this. The second one is, how much pleasure does it bring me? Does this bring me joy? And then the, the corollary of that is how much pain will I suffer if I don't do this? You could say that, that we are, as humans, by our nature, hedonistic economists. All of us are that way, even little children. A toddler knows that, that taking three M&Ms from a jar is better than taking one M&M from a jar. So, some of us in, are in the habit of putting more stock in the pleasure something gives, and some of us prefer to put more stock in the perceived value of things. So, so on the first extreme, on the far hedonistic side, you have this, I only do what feels good type of person. So to this extreme case, the economic gain of hard work isn't ever worth it. Because work isn't fun, it doesn't bring pleasure, it's work. And because there's no pleasure, there's nothing to be gained for them. That's, that's the, the extreme on the, on the one side. And on the other extreme of the spectrum, you've got your, your Ebenezer Scrooge types. Bet- between valuing something because of its pleasure and valuing something for its economic worth, we could say that most of Scrooge's decisions were made purely on the economic worth of things. He was a joyless man. I always think of that scene. I know it's not Christmas, all right? But I always think of that scene where, where he's a miser with the coal. It's freezing, and he doesn't want to, to put more coal in the fire to, to warm up. He'd rather freeze than spend money and be comfortable. He, he took pleasure in nothing, but he valued gold more than anything else because he knew its worth. So he's on the extreme economist side of things. But, but most of us are not on either extreme. We're somewhere in the middle between Funtime Freddy and Scrupulous Scrooge. And because of that, we will sacrifice a great deal for something that brings us pleasure. And we'll sacrifice a lot for something of great value. But we won't go out of our way for something that is neither pleasurable nor valuable. So think this then, the command to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and soul, we won't ever do that. We can't ever do that unless we either see the value of Christ or we know the joy of following Christ. Or better yet, both. The point of the parable that Christ has for us this morning is that the kingdom of heaven, and and by that we mean living under the rule, the reign of Jesus Christ, the King, there is to be found in that immeasurable riches and never-ending joy. Christ is of greater value than anything else, and there is more joy to be found in him than there is in anything else. That's what he wants us to see in this parable. Look, look with me again at verse 44. I hope you have the Bibles open because we won't have them on the screen for you this morning. That was my decision. 
So open your Bible, Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, and look there with me. Look again what Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Do not miss the second sentence. This is a treasure so great that this man who finds it joyfully sells all that he has to purchase the field that the treasure is in. It's his aim to possess the treasure. He wants it more than anything else. And if that means that all of his heart and all of his mind and all of his soul must belong to this treasure to possess it, then so be it. It's a joyful exchange. He will gladly give up all that he is and all that he has for this treasure. The treasure really is that valuable. It tr- it valuable. It truly brings that much joy. And then Jesus kind of adds a, a second half to the parable. If you can't relate to the man purchasing a field, if you're less of a farmer and more of a merchant, he says in verses 45 and 46, think of it this way. The kingdom of heaven is, is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold, again, all that he had and bought it. Now, a merchant, I think this is a helpful way of looking at it. A merchant by trade, his one job is to do what? To buy low and sell high. That's how a merchant makes a living. His livelihood is founded on recognizing the true value of undervalued things. So, so when he sees this, this pearl of great value, he knows it is just that. It's something of great value. It is worth all that he has. It's of infinite value. And so he makes the same calculation that the man who purchased the field made. He's thinking this way. In my possession right now, I have this this pile of perishable things. Things which can be easily burned up. Things that can rust. Things that will be destroyed or taken from me. And I'm being offered this imperishable, precious jewel of infinite value that can never be taken away. Which will I choose? You see the calculation? It's not a difficult one to make. In both cases, the farmer and the merchant recognize that they have found, they found something that is worth giving everything up for. The treasure, the pearl, it's, it's that valuable. They see the worth in it. And there is joy for them, there's joy in making the exchange. My pile of ashes for an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Jesus wants us to see in this parable that the kingdom of heaven, his reign, his rule in our lives is of greater value than anything else you can imagine. And it brings more joy than anything else. And so it's worth giving up all that we have for. 
That's the point of the parable. It's very simple, isn't it? But what does that look like? Is Jesus saying that I have to leave behind my wife and kids, my home, everything I enjoy in this life in order to follow him? Is, are the people who are saved only those who have gone to a foreign land and left everything behind? I don't think he's saying that. I think what he wants us to see is that there is more joy to be found in him than in marriage or in parenting. More joy than in your hobbies or in your work. There's more value in living in Christ than there is in all the land and all the money, all the gold and silver and precious jewels combined. Christ is of infinite worth. That is the point of this parable. All that you have outside of Christ is, as Paul would say, rubbish compared to knowing Christ as Lord. But here's the thing, because we could just end there, couldn't we? Because that's the point of the parable, and it doesn't take much explaining. But here's, here's the thing, unless we see that as true, this is meaningless. Unless we see and understand that there is joy to be found in Christ, unless we see that his lordship in our lives is to be valued above all else, unless we see it and understand it, this parable is meaningless to us. It's just a tautology. So with the time we have left, my only aim is to answer this question for you. Why? Why is Christ's lordship, why is his reign, why is the kingdom of heaven such a precious treasure? You can't love him with all your heart and soul and mind without knowing why you should. You can't be willing to lay aside every weight which clings so closely to run to Jesus if you don't know why it's worthwhile. And so we're just going to answer that this morning. Why? And we're going to look at it in two stages. First, the value of Christ. And secondly, the pleasure, the joy in Christ. So first, why is there infinite value to be found in Jesus Christ? Why is there infinite value to be found in Jesus Christ? Well, here's the short answer. Because there is more mercy, there is more grace, there is more righteousness, and more love in Christ than you will find anywhere else. Let's start with mercy. There's more mercy to be found in Christ than in anything or anyone else. You have friends who will forgive you for almost anything. Almost. Nearly. But each one of your friends has a limit. Even your best friend has a limit to the mercy they can show you. Even your spouse has a limit to the mercy, the forgiveness they can show you. As we sang, there is no limit to the mercy of Jesus Christ because in Jesus Christ is the mercy of an infinite God. 
Think of this. Think of when, when the Lord presents himself to Moses in Exodus 34. What is the first thing he says about himself? Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. Merciful. God is merciful. It's who he is. It's the first word that God uses to describe himself when he presents himself to Moses. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, when Paul tells us about the salvation that we have in Christ, he says that God is rich in mercy. And it was that richness of mercy that compelled him to send Christ, to save us in Christ. In 1 Peter 1, 3, that passage that Josh prayed for us, Peter tells us that it is according to God's mercy that he caused us to be born again into Christ. We are in desperate, desperate need of mercy from God because mercy from God is what is required for forgiveness of our sin. And we are, whether you like to believe it or not, sinners. Rebels against God. In our sin, our we find our greatest value in things other than God. We, found, we find our greatest pleasure in things other than God and what he's given us. And because of all that, all that we deserve from God is his wrath, hell. But in Christ, instead of God's wrath, we are shown God's mercy. Jesus Christ is the focal point, what we would say, the seat of God's mercy. Were it not for Christ, we would never know the limitless bounds of God's mercy. In Christ, we see the fullness of God's mercy. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. Displays God's mercy in Christ this way. God canceled, Paul says, Colossians 2.14, God canceled the record of debt that stood against us by nailing it to the cross. And friends, who was nailed to the cross? Jesus Christ himself. Christ has absorbed the full wrath of God so that we might see the glorious mercy of God. Christ is the greatest treasure because in Christ, the mercy of God is displayed. Secondly, though I told you that we see God's grace in Christ. Christ is a treasure worth exchanging all we have for because in Christ, there is more grace to be found than anywhere else. If, if mercy is being shown forgiveness when what we deserve is hell, grace is being shown favor. Mercy gets us from negative territory to zero. The punishment we deserve is withheld, but grace is the other side. Grace gets us from zero to glory. When we deserved nothing, we were given Jesus Christ, the Son of God, by grace. When we deserve nothing, we've been given adoption to become the children of God by grace. 
Where we deserve nothing, we've been given eternity with God through grace in Jesus Christ. Where we deserve nothing, we've been given an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, that it's kept in heaven for us by grace. And that inheritance is Christ's inheritance, and it is ours when we're united to Christ in faith. We deserve hell, but we've been shown mercy. And even more, God has shown us his grace. He's blessed us. He's caused his face to shine upon us. His radiance, his glory has been given to us in Jesus Christ. John says in, in John 1.14, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, sent from the Father, is full of grace and truth. He goes on to say that from that fullness of grace that Christ is, we receive grace upon grace. It's overflowing. It's boundless. Ephesians 2.7 says we were saved so that in the coming ages we might show the immeasurable, immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.24 says we were justified, made right before God. How? By our work? No, by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul, in the book of Titus, even calls Jesus himself the very grace of God. Titus 2.2, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Jesus Christ is the manifestation. He is the embodiment of the grace of God. He is to be treasured above all else. He is of more value than anything else, not just because he gives us the grace of God. Jesus Christ is the very grace of God. Thirdly, righteousness. Jesus Christ is of more worth than anything else or anyone else because there is a greater righteousness in Christ than there is in anyone else. We need God's mercy and grace because we lack righteousness. We, we are incapable of a righteousness that can stand before a holy God. He is wholly other, totally perfect, totally righteous. We are by nature profane, ordinary, not righteous, not holy. As different as we feel from one another, as much as we want to think of ourselves as unique, the, the reality is where, where it counts, we're all the same. We're, we're turned inward on ourselves. We're selfish. And in our selfishness, we are at best self-righteous. We need a greater righteousness than that to stand before God on judgment day. And there's no doubt that judgment is coming. Think of the, the third parable that we read this morning. We have the treasure, we have the pearl, and then we had the parable of the net. And I think that's strategically put there where it is 
in Matthew's gospel to remind us that judgment is coming and that righteousness is needed. In the parable of the net that we read, we see that on judgment day, there will be a separation that takes place. A separation that takes place between the evil and the righteous. The evil, the unrighteous, are thrown into the fiery furnace, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the righteous are reserved. They're they're preserved for Christ. But the problem is, that none of us is righteous. All of us are in that bad fish category. We are in desperate need of the righteousness that will require us, that will be required of us to to qualify as, as good fish on that day. And by the grace of God, in Christ, we have that righteousness. His righteousness, a greater righteousness than we could ever hope for on our own. In the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul tells us that he has found in Christ immense riches. So much, in fact, that he counted everything as loss for the sake of gaining Christ. He was very much like the man who found the treasure in the field. He he joyfully gave up all that he had, all that he was in order to gain Christ. In Christ, the righteousness of God was one of the brightest, biggest diamonds that Paul saw in that treasure in the field. Let me read for you what he says in Philippians 3, 8, and 9. Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake... I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And here is why he wants to be found in Christ. The rest of verse 9 says, Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. We're righteous before God only in Jesus Christ because he is the righteousness of God. Christ is the greatest treasure because he is the righteousness of God. And through faith in him, we have that righteousness. Fourthly, love. The fourth reason that God is to be tre- that Christ is to be treasured above all else is because there is a greater love in Christ than in anyone else. A greater love for you. I'm going to turn your attention to Exodus 34:6 again. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, "The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, we saw that, gracious, we saw that, slow to anger." And then he says, "abounding and steadfast love and faithfulness. The Lord abounds in steadfast love. He is rich in mercy. He is rich in grace. He is perfectly righteous. He abounds in love. And that love is seen in Jesus Christ. It's the only way we know the love of God for us. How does God show his love for us? Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
I told you earlier that it was because of the richness of God's mercy that he made us alive together with Christ. It was from Ephesians chapter 2. But Paul says more in Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. What I gave you was incomplete. All of these things can't really be separated from one another to begin with. But let me read for you Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Mercy is certainly there. God's richness in mercy is, is the grounding. But it is because of the great love with which he loved us that even when we were dead in our trespasses, we could be made alive together in Christ. And in the same way, that Christ is the mercy of God displayed, and he is the grace of God displayed, and he is the righteousness of God displayed. He is also the love of God displayed. John tells us this, 1 John 4, 9, in this the love of God was made manifest, there's that word, manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Christ is an infinite treasure worth exchanging everything for because in him is the love of God. Jesus Christ is the mercy, he's the grace, he is the righteousness, he is the love of God because he is God. Hebrews 1.3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of of his nature. He is God become flesh. And so all of God's attributes are seen in Christ. They shine through. They are made manifest in Christ. He is to be treasured because he is the eternal God. He has come to reconcile us to himself. And that reconciliation comes because he's merciful, because he's gracious, because he is righteous, because he is love. There's more value in the kingdom of heaven living under the reign of Christ than in anything else. But secondly, I told you that we would see there is more pleasure to be found in Christ than anywhere else. Nothing can compare to the treasure we have in Christ. But there's joy in knowing you have it. You possess it. The treasure is yours. You've, you've found the pearl. You've sold all that you had to buy it. There's never going to be any buyer's remorse. Your treasure is sure. You've found the treasure and there's joy because you sold everything to own it. And you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, beyond, beyond even the faintest whisper of a doubt, you know that you have the most valuable treasure. The joy that you have in Christ is in faith. It's, it's in the assurance of the treasure that you have. There, there's rejoicing at knowing you are at peace with God. Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 5, Romans 5, 10 through 11. After telling us about the grace and about the mercy and about the love of God that brings us salvation in Christ, Paul tells us this. 
Romans 5.10. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And then, and then look at what he says. He says in verse 11, more than that, more than that, we also rejoice in God. So, so, so there's this, I have to read this again. Verse 10, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved? Right, so we've been reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more shall we be saved by his life, by his resurrection, and more than that, we also rejoice. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So we're reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more are we brought near to God by the resurrection of his son. And more than that, we rejoice because we've received reconciliation. We know it. We have assurance of the peace that we have with God. And there is joy in knowing that you are at peace with God. Greater than our salvation is the rejoicing that we have in our salvation. We've been freed from sin. Rejoice. We've been shown a greater love than we could ever have known. Rejoice. Take heart. Take joy. Thomas Brooks, he's a Puritan writer from the 1600s. He said that the assurance we have in Christ is like a, a heaven that we can experience now. You, you've heard this saying before, oh, this is like heaven on earth. The only true heaven on earth is the assurance that we have knowing that we will be in heaven with Christ one day. Nothing else compares to that. The object of our faith, Jesus Christ, is such a great treasure that knowing you have him, knowing that your future is secure in him, leads to joy, not later, but now, in the present time, in the face of everything else, joy, now, because you have assurance in Christ. James, Jesus' brother, at the very beginning of his epistle, says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. How can he say that? How can we have joy in trials? Because we know that we have the greatest treasure. We have Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. Peter says the same thing. He says, in our salvation, we rejoice. In this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What, 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 the verb there that grounds the rest of that text is the rejoicing we have. Peter's saying we rejoice though we are experiencing trials. 
How? How can we rejoice now? We keep going. Look at verse 8, 1 Peter 6, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice now, present tense. You rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We don't see him now. We're not with him now. But we rejoice now because we know he is ours. We know we have the treasure. We know that we have sold all that we have for the treasure now. So in the face of difficulty, James and Peter and Jesus and Paul can all say that nothing compares to the joy that we already have. It's unshakable. If we have Christ now, we have the greatest treasure and nothing can take it. Neither height, nor depth, nor angels, nor rulers, nor principalities, nothing. Nothing. It's ours. Christ is ours. So whatever you have given up, Christian, or whatever you're being asked to give up for the sake of Christ, it won't be a sacrifice. It won't be something to bemoan or to, to kind of drag your feet and eeyore your way about things. It's not, oh, look how much I have to give up for Christ. Instead, it's, it's more like this. It's, look, look how little I had before I found Christ. Look how impoverished I was. See how weighed down, see how burdened by my sin, see how burdened by this world I was before Christ. And now I'm free because I've given it up. Sacrificing for Christ isn't a sacrifice. Taking up your cross to follow Christ is not a load to bear. It's more like having a heavy burden lifted than it is putting one on. Losing your life to be found in Christ, dying to yourself to be found in Christ, it's not a death of suffering. There's nothing to mourn. It's the death of your worst enemy. And new life in Christ, the one who loves you more than anyone else. David Livingston understood this. You might recognize that name. He's a missionary to the interior of sub-Saharan Africa. His heart is buried in Zambia, where he ministered. His body is buried in London at Westminster Chapel. But Livingston said this about following Christ. And I want you to listen carefully. It's an English that's slightly older than what we're used to. Listen carefully to what he says. He said, for my own part, and remember, he he left the comfort of London for sub-Saharan Africa before electricity, before there was comfort, at a time when, when malaria was a likelihood for him. He says, for my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Away with the word in such a view. And with such a thought, it is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, 
suffering, danger now and then, with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause, may cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink, but let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us and for us. I never made a sacrifice. I never made a sacrifice. It's, you see what he's saying? It's not a sacrifice to set aside all you have for Christ, the greatest treasure. All you have is rubbish compared to Christ. To exchange what you have for the kingdom of heaven is to exchange the perishable for the imperishable. This life for eternity. It's a pleasure to make that exchange. It's pure joy to make that exchange and to know you've made it. It's it's that truth that can allow the psalmist to say this in Psalm 16. Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. How can we love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our mind and all our soul? Well, we can only love the Lord fully in Christ. Because only in Christ can we know the value of the treasure. And only in Christ can we know the pleasure of owning it. That's how we we can know that what Jesus says is true. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Let's pray. Lord, I praise you this morning that you have revealed the treasure of Christ to so many of us here at Del Cerro. We know we could not have uncovered this treasure on our own. We had no business being in this field on our own. But you have revealed the treasure that Christ is. And you've given us joy in owning Christ as our own. Lord, for those who who have not yet understood what a treasure Christ is. And they're wondering what the point of the resurrection of Christ is. What's the point of Easter? Lord, would you reveal to them this morning that Easter, that the resurrection of Christ shows us that he is the eternal God, that he has defeated death, And that truly in him is more mercy, more grace, more righteousness, and more love than we could find anywhere else. And Lord, would you cause them to repent of all that they have and all that they are joyfully and 